Okay, welcome back podcast listeners. It's Jan and Gabe and we're back to kick off season three of Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast. Hi, Jana. Hey. We're, uh, we're, we're in the same physical location today recording and we had a little technical difficulty with our with our microphone, so we're on a backup microphone, so hopefully the audio quality will be acceptable. Before we start talking about the new Oklahoma Supreme Court cases that have come out over the last couple of weeks, we got a couple items of court news. Janet, do you have any court news that you want to share with our listeners? Sure. So it was posted on OSCN for a couple of weeks. Most of you have probably seen it, but sadly, Judge Rapp at the Court of Civil Appeals passed away a couple of weeks ago. So that court is down one judge now and has an opening. So we'll see what happens there. Okay. Well, let's jump right into it then. I think we have, I think, four new substantive opinions issued by the Supreme Court to bring it to speed on, as well as some administrative matters. So starting in with 2022 OK71, first opinion issued by the court after the unofficial summer break is Cherokee Nation versus Lexington Insurance Company. This is a much-anticipated dispute about insurance coverage for business interruption caused by the COVID-19 pandemic. So another COVID case working its way through the court. Mm -hmm. There were about 50 lawyers that had filed entries of appearance (laughs) in this case. It's not an exaggeration. Very interesting topic and important insurance coverage decision coming out. So the Cherokee Nation is the plaintiff in this case. The named defendant is Lexington Insurance Company, although there were a bunch of insurance companies that were included in the case, reinsure, you know, others with something at stake here. The Cherokee Nation, in response to the COVID-19 pandemic in March of 2020, closed their properties voluntarily. I think that would be mostly some of their gaming properties. Mm-hmm. And they did not reopen until June of 2020. And in the interim there, the nation uh, made some changes to the physical characteristics of their properties, installing plexiglass and doing other things to mitigate the spread of COVID-19. During part of that time, the governor had declared a state of emergency, although the closing of the casinos was voluntary. So... They were not closed because they were ordered to be closed. This was a, I guess, preemptive or voluntary action taken by the nation to temporarily close their properties from March to June of 2020. And in the meantime, they, as I said, you know, did some retrofitting of plexiglass and other mitigation measures before they reopened in June. And when they reopened, they made a claim under their all-risk property insurance policy for business interruption. And the carrier denied the claim and the carrier's position was that business interruption coverage only applies during the restoration period when insured rebuilds, repairs, or replaces 
property that has been physically damaged or lost, and the coverage was not available under the scenario that the Cherokee Nation was dealing with and the one that they made the claim for. The trial court, which was the District Court of Cherokee County and Judge Kirkley, granted the nation's motion for partial summary judgment, finding coverage for losses under the policy's business interruption provision. And, of course, the insurer appealed, and the case was retained by the Supreme Court on its own motion. So a little odd that neither side requested retention on this matter, but that's not how it got to the court. The court retained it on its own motion. So standard of review is de novo because we're dealing with the grant of a summary judgment. And in addition to that, uh, we've got double de novo here because the interpretation of an insurance policy is a question of law, which the court also reviewed the We made up a new standard of review just now, double de novo. Double de novo. FYI. Yeah. <laughs> so the court says the question before us is whether the business interruption coverage for losses caused by direct physical loss or damage to real and or personal property, which is how the coverage is described in the policy, would include losses incurred by an intangible harm that rendered the property unusable for its intended purpose. So no direct physical harm, just an intangible harm. The court starts out by saying that you know, the foremost principle that governs their review of insurance coverage is that an insurance policy is a contract and the insured and the insurer are mostly free to contract for whatever coverage they see fit and that they're going to be bound by whatever they agree to and the court will not undertake to rewrite the terms of the policy. Now, this policy was what's called in the industry an all-risk policy, but the court says it doesn't mean it covers every conceivable loss. Just because it's called an all-risk policy, it still has to have coverage for the particular claim. It doesn't cover all conceivable losses. The policy does include coverage against loss resulting directly from interruption of business, services, or rental value created by direct physical loss or damage to real and or personal property. And that really is the heart of the matter here is even the insured is not claiming that there was any direct physical loss. And that's where the court zeroes in and the court says basically in line with every other circuit court of appeals and district courts and state courts, that have ruled that business interruption coverage requires actual tangible loss or damage, not just loss of use. So under the plain language of the policy and common usage of the terms, there is no coverage for merely loss of use that is not tied together with some direct physical loss or damage. The term loss of use requires immediate and actual material or tangible deprivation or destruction of property. So no coverage. The trial court's order is reversed. The case is remanded. This comes down on a 6-3 vote, opinion written by Justice Winchester. And the dissenting justices are Edmondson, who writes separately, Combs, and Gurich. Also of note, Special Justice Prince from our Court of Civil Appeals was appointed to hear the case, and that suggests to me that this was 
first of all, even though it's been an issue for a while, so they must have been struggling to reach a majority opinion on this case before the end of, you know, the spring, before, before the summer months. And then they, at some point, Special Justice Prince was appointed, even though we do end up with a 6-3, not a 5-4, but I suspect at one point they may have been at a 4-4 situation when mm-hmm. we had one judge that recused, which was Justice Cogger had recused. Mm-hmm. So just a little tidbit here. The dissent notes that this policy at issue does not contain what is common language utilized by most carriers to clearly exclude losses due to pandemics or suspected imminent threatened or fear of viruses. But the day after this lawsuit was filed, the insurer filed an amendment to the policy, you know, with the insurance commissioner that added that exclusion to the policy. So they weren't going to get themselves in this situation again on the next pandemic. That's right. So that's, that's the outcome there. One, no coverage. One thing to say about about this one. Somehow I doubt that there's just one thing to say. <laughs> no, I just would like to give yeah. kudos to whatever law clerk or law clerks wrote this opinion. Footnote 13 is amazing. It has every case, I think, that has probably come out on this issue across the country. And it goes on for a long time with a parenthetical explaining what each court decided. So if you need any research on this issue, footnote 13 is a great place to start. All right. Okay, the next case I've got as well, 2022 OK73, Ritter versus State. And this is, again, another COVID-related case. So they're working their way up to our highest state court. And this one has to do with a Senate Bill 658, which created two new sections of Title 70, Section 1210, TAC 189, and 190, which are related. And one of them, 189, relates to vaccine restrictions and basically prohibits a school board or board of a technology center from requiring a COVID-19 vaccine. And then Section 190 provides that a board of education at a public school or technology center may only implement a mask mandate or mandate any other medical device during a time that has been declared a state of emergency by the governor. So this law is passed and these statutes added. And then on August 12th, 2021, the plaintiffs in this case filed suit and argued that the two sections are unenforceable on several constitutional grounds. They rely on the Oklahoma Constitution to say that this new legislation violates equal protection, due process, it's a special law regulating a school district, which is specifically prohibited by our state constitution, and they also throw in the single subject rule, the old mm-hmm. single subject rule. Mm-hmm. Always stick that in. <laughs> we haven't had a single subject rule we case haven't, recently, actually. but mm-hmm. it was definitely a hot topic for uh, for a few years mm-hmm. there. And then on September 8th, 2021, the trial court, which is the district court of Oklahoma County and Judge Natalie May, issued a temporary injunction to halt enforcement of these new statutes. And of course, the state appealed and the plaintiffs in the case counter appealed. The plaintiffs 
are, for the most part, there are several of them, but for the most part, they are medical professionals with children who have some underlying medical condition that would perhaps make them more vulnerable to complications from COVID-19. And, you know, their position is the school board should be able to decide if there's a mask mandate or not to protect, you know, vulnerable populations in the school district. And we don't need the governor to bless it by declaring a state of emergency, which the governor had publicly said he was not going to do. Mm-hmm. So that's what we've got here. Standard review for issuance of a temporary injunction, which is what, what we have. I mean, we, the case comes up as an appeal to this temporary injunction. So the court says a standard of review when they're reviewing a temporary injunction is whether the trial court abuses discretion or entered a decision against the evidence, which is kind of a squishy standard. <laughs> they were just wrong. <laughs> we can also reverse it if it's wrong. Also a new standard of review. Yes. The squishy standard. The squishy standard of against the evidence. <laughs> Not what we would have done. So that's the setting here. And the court actually does not even get to any of the grounds that the statutes are challenged on. They go a different direction and say, the problem here is that matters of local schools are subject to local control. And and there is actually kind of a state constitutional and legislatively enacted framework that does prefers local control for local schools. I mentioned earlier that one of the grounds of challenge here was a constitutional prohibition on special laws regulating school districts. Mm-hmm. So even going back to, you know, framers, they had a, an interest in preserving local control for schools and not allowing the legislature to pass special laws to tell local school districts how to do business. So that's where the Supreme Court digs in is is not on any particular challenge that was raised by the parties, but on the issue of usurping local control and transferring authority to the governor that the court says belongs to his local school districts. The court notes that the framers of our state constitution feared excessive power in the hands of one individual and So they created a, quote, weak chief executive (laughs) in our state government. And the problem with these new statutes is that it removes the school board's authority to act independently and exercise the authority that's granted the school board and transfers that authority to the governor, who has neither constitutional nor statutory authority over the operation of schools. And this is an impermissible delegation of authority. So the part of the statute that requires the governor to declare a state of emergency in order to give school boards the authority to implement a mask mandate is unconstitutional and stricken. The majority, though, says the rest of the statute is fine. And so what's kind of ironic is what the legislature was intending to do was tell the school boards that they can't do something without the governor's authority. And the Supreme Court said the governor authority part is stricken. So you basically just affirm that local school boards can, can, do what they can create to. mass mandates. Mm-hmm. So kind of an ironic result, given what the intent of the legislature, I, I think, probably was here. The court says, you know, before we even get into the constitutional arguments about equal protection, due process, special laws, 
single subject rule, etc. We can decide this matter based on improper delegation of authority. So that's as far as we need to go. And that part of the statute is stricken. And the result removes the constitutional infirmity and enhances the school board's authority to act independently and exercise authority over local public health and welfare matters. The technical outcome is that the district court's temporary injunction is vacated, but the bigger picture is they basically found part of the statute unconstitutional, which I suppose made the district court's temporary injunction a nullity, so that's why they vacated it. It's a 7-2 decision, although don't assume that that means two people didn't agree with the outcome because they they actually, they did. They thought that the majority didn't go far enough. And I guess, is it correct to say it's 7-2? Because the two dissenters dissented in part and concurred in part and basically agreed with the outcome. Mm -hmm. So 7-2-9-0, you probably could argue, you could characterize it either way. The two parties that dissented in part and concurred in part were special Justice Fisher, who was appointed to the case because Vice Chief Justice Kane had recused and Justice Combs joined. And the special justice actually did the separate writings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just jumped right in there and, and right. not only participated, but wrote separately. Well, that's right. This isn't his first rodeo as a special justice. Yeah. <laughs> so in his separate writing is interesting because he says, we concur that section 1210, TAC 90, that gives the governor basically the power to unlock the authority of local school boards to declare a mask mandate is unconstitutional and permissible delegation of power to the governor. But also the other section that was added under this Senate bill, 1210 TAC 189 is also unconstitutional because it's a prohibited special law regarding public schools, specifically prohibited by article five, section 46 of the Oklahoma constitution. And Further, the separate writing goes on to point out that the 1210 TAC 89, what it does in part is prohibit a school board from adding COVID-19 to the list of required immunizations is meaningless because it tells the school board they can't do something that they couldn't do anyway because Mm -hmm. Title 70 OS Section 1210 TAC 191C already lists the immunizations that are required to attend public school and the power to amend that list is reserved to the state commissioner of health. So the legislature is telling local schools that they can't do something that they already couldn't do. So I think overall the court seems to just not be very impressed with this legislation. (laughs) So there you go. Um, one thing to note here is that the court last year in September of 2021, when they received this case, put it on the fast track docket, which is a, something that we've noted before. They shortened the briefing cycle to a 2027 cycle. And the court clerk's office in Oklahoma County got the notice of completion in which would trigger that cycle within the next couple of weeks of that order. So, but we still don't get a decision until a year later. So I'm wondering if with the appointment of Special Justice Fisher, if perhaps this got a little bit hung up, even though they were trying to get it out quickly. Also, just for those listening and wanting to know, it's Article 4, Section 1 of the Oklahoma Constitution that is technically the the provision that 
the court used here, the separation of powers provision. All right. Well, two other matters for me to touch on, and I'll turn it over to Jana to talk about the last two cases. These two matters are not opinions, rather amendments to our jury instructions. So 22 OK 74 is an order adopting amendments to the Oklahoma Uniform Jury Instructions for juvenile matters. And if you practice in that area, you certainly want to take a look at the changes to the jury instructions. There are a few new instructions, actually maybe just one new instruction, but amendments to seven or eight and some amendments to the comments, notes on use, etc. So take a look at those. I thought of interest here was that we had Justice Cogger dissenting to this order. And Justice Cogger points out that we have added a new rule, 1.16. Actually, it may just be an amendment to the 1.16 rule, but it is the rule on bias on account of race, religion, etc. So this instruction is, remember that under our justice system, the race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, or social status of the parties or their attorneys must not be considered by you in the discharge of your sworn duty as a juror. Interesting that we need to instruct jurors of that, but I guess it's always helpful to have a little reminder (laughs) that those are the rules. Justice Cogger does not like this rule because it fails to include the factors concerning bias and prejudice listed in Rule 2.3 of the Code of Judicial Conduct. Not sure what that's about, but just thought that was kind of interesting. Not often do we see a dissent in a writing on an order adopting rule changes. The other one for probably most of our listeners is more impactful, and that is 2022 OK75, Amendments to Oklahoma Jury Instructions Civil. So several new jury instructions here and several amendments that you're going to want to take a look at if you are a civil litigator or really everyone should be somewhat aware of these. I think a good place to start when you're thinking about how to approach causes of action is to take a look at the jury instructions and see, you know, what causes of actions you might have. It's a pretty good way to have a you know, a quick look at what the elements are and what evidence you need to bring. What evidence you're going to need. So, I think it's a good place to start when assessing any type of dispute. The new instructions are one covering support animals, just basically saying that the court has allowed a support animal to be present and you're not to let that influence your decision in some way. The 1.14 is a deadlocked jury instruction, which is interesting because as I was looking over this, I recalled that we had talked about an Oklahoma Court of Civil Appeals case last year that was reversed because the court gave a verdict urging instruction. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was noted in that opinion is that the civil jury instructions lacked a deadlocked jury charge instruction. So... Here we have some responsive action being taken to fill in a hole here in our jury instructions. And now we have a deadlocked jury charge. So hopefully we can avoid judges on the bench having to wing it on those and potentially create reversible errors. So that's there's a couple other new and amended jury instructions. So definitely take a look at those if you are a civil practitioner. This episode is brought to you by OklahomaForms.com. Take cut and paste to the next level with hundreds of automated forms in multiple practice areas. Draft better documents faster 
and make your practice more efficient and profitable for only $49 per month. No long-term commitment. Cancel any time. Join hundreds of Oklahoma lawyers that have already discovered the magic of OklahomaForms.com. Go to OklahomaForms.com to sign up for a free seven-day trial. Over to you, Jana. Okay. Well, for our faithful listeners out there, you will recall that we have discussed this next issue in the last few months. The next two opinions that came out this week, actually, deal with the proposed state question 820, which is the legalization of recreational marijuana. And the last time we discussed it, the proponents of this state question were well on their way to getting their 90,000 plus signatures that were required to try to get this on the November ballot. And it looked pretty promising that that was going to happen. (laughs) These next two opinions, specifically 2022 OK 76, indicate that that is actually not going to happen. Signatures, yes. November ballot, no. (laughs) No. (laughs) So, here's what happened. The petitioners began gathering their signatures in the beginning of May. And after clearing some preliminary hurdles. Yep, after clearing a couple of constitutional challenges, they got the signatures gathered and they had until August 1st to get those submitted to the Secretary of State. They submitted them almost a month early on July 5th. They, they took almost 120 boxes of signatures over to the Secretary of State. And interestingly, the statute in Title 34 was amended in 2020 by the legislature to require the Secretary of State not just to count the signatures, but also to verify the signatures on the petition. Which I think means matching. Right. They call them six data points, and they had to match three of the six data points. So voter's first name, last name, zip code, house number, birthday, and those had to match what was with the state election board. So So when you sign up, petition in the parking lot mm-hmm. at Lowe's, mm-hmm. that's something you have to write in. Your mm-hmm. your name, first name, last name, address, date of birth. Yes. And so the legislature created a requirement that those be matched up with what the election board has on their records mm-hmm. to presumably prevent people from signing multiple times or signature gatherers just signing names and mm-hmm. there would be a lot more work to actually also have to figure out, you know, where people live and all that. Yes. The amendment in 2020 allowed the secretary of state to purchase any and all software basically that it needed to carry out this new duty of verifying, not just counting the signatures. So They get some new software when the petitioners take their boxes to the Secretary of State's office. The secretary advises them that they believe this new verification process would take about two to three weeks. And it might even be faster because of this new electronic counting process that was going to be conducted by the vendor. Yeah, I think it wasn't two to three weeks historically about how long it's taken under the old rules. 
under the old rules. So then technology happens, apparently, and... Or not. <laughs> or not. Software doesn't work. Worth a dang. Yeah, apparently. the software does not work, and they realize that when they're putting these signature sheets in, it's coming back, generating what the court calls wildly inaccurate digital text. And so... As a result, most of the signature sheets had to be looked at individually (laughs) and verified by manually typing all of this information into this new program. So the petitioners, of course, volunteer extra help to work past five, speed up the process. Secretary declines the offer and supposedly hires and trains numerous temporary workers and reallocates some of his full-time staff. But ultimately, the signature counting and verification process, instead of taking two to three weeks, took seven weeks. And so it did not conclude until August the 17th. So these dates that I'm about to tell you, just stay with me here because it gets pretty convoluted on all the dates. Nevertheless, before the signature counting is finished, the state election board sends a letter to the petitioners and tells them that August the 26th, which is a Friday, is the state election board's internal deadline for getting the ballot printed and ready or sending it off to get printed and be ready for the November election. And that may sound like a long time, but the explanation is I think there's some federal law that says ballots have to be mailed to military and absentee, absentee voters. voters for like 45 days prior to the election. Yes, which is today, actually. September 23rd is the 45th day before the election. So in order to meet that, supposedly the state election board had to have you know the ballot ready to go to print so it can get those back in time to mail out. So petitioners are concerned about this, and so they file an application to assume original jurisdiction with the Supreme Court on August the 22nd, asking the court to basically require the state election board and the governor to do everything that they possibly can to make sure State Question 820 gets on the November ballot. So the Secretary of State on that same day, the 22nd, certifies to the Supreme Court that the numerical sufficiency of the signatures is correct. And so then the court has to count the signatures under the statute. And so it takes them a couple days to do that. And on the 25th of August, the court finds the signatures are numerically sufficient and they then direct the Secretary of State to publish notice. That's also a statutory requirement. I think these dates are important. It takes the Secretary of State until August 31st, another six days or so, to get the notice of state question published. And so if the notice includes the ballot title and basically tells the public, you know, here's what's going to be on the ballot, and then that notice triggers a 10-day deadline for any additional protests to be filed. So the notice is triggered during that 10-day window. There were four protests filed with the Supreme Court, and one of them dealt directly with the ballot title, and then the other three were, I think, just substantive questions, issues about, you know, the legalization of recreational marijuana. So... 
The court denied relief in two of those cases on September 16th, and they shortened the time for a rehearing petition. Typically, it's a 20-day time frame. The court shortened it, and on the same day this opinion came out, so September 21st, they denied rehearing in one of those cases. They also approved the Attorney General's rewritten ballot title, which was another one of the protests, on September 21st, which was this week, and that's the next case we'll talk about, and shortened the rehearing time for that case to this coming Monday, the 26th. The other challenge, they denied the requested relief there and shortened the rehearing time to Monday, the 26th as well. The court then goes on to say, look, this has been a statutory process that has had to play out. There was the notice had to be published. The 10 days had to run. We had to deal with the protests of challenging certain aspects of it. And so because of that, we just don't see that at this time, state question 820 is in full compliance because there's still a possibility that two rehearings could be filed on these last two protests, which prevents the court from fully resolving the objections in compliance with the statute, which then prevents the Secretary of State and the governor from taking their final steps and getting this on the ballot. They say that the delays here in this case and this process were caused by the Secretary of State's, quote, learning curve associated with the use of the new software and by the filing of four statutorily allowed protests. So they deny the writ of mandamus, you know, that's asking basically to get this on the ballot, force the governor to put this on the ballot. And that's it. They deny the, the writ. It's not going to be on the ballot. A couple of separate writings here. Justice Winchester concurs specially. And I think this is interesting because he points out here that the state election board secretary, who was the respondent in this case, filed an affidavit with the Supreme Court advising the court that the ballot preparation process that must be accomplished has to be finished by September the 23rd which is today when we're recording this, in order to comply with the federal and state military overseas voters laws. So the affidavit, to my knowledge, may have mentioned the August 26th internal deadline, but I think the drop-dead day was today, September 23rd. If the court would have said, today is it, we're issuing the writ, figure out a way to get these on the ballot, to me, that is what this affidavit seems to indicate, is that September 23rd was the drop-dead date. But there's still two protests that, in theory, could... That uh, have until Monday, the 26th, <laughs> to file their petition for rehearing. Yes. Which, and I, I don't know what the substantive complaint is. So this recreational marijuana will be on a ballot. A ballot. But not the November one. <laughs> so for practical purposes, it will either be the next general election or it will be a special election called by the governor. Unlikely. Which would Depending on who our governor is. Is not going to happen. Yeah. And, and that's that's the real deal here is, okay, if you, you know, it sounds like there were some changes to the statute, some new processes. It took the Secretary of State's office, you know, through two and a half to three times as long as it used to to count signatures. If you want to be a conspiracy theorist, one might assume that the Secretary of State 
may be in the same party as the governor, who is up for re-election in November. The petitioners just called him out in their pleadings in this case. It says in paragraph 12, the court says, according to petitioners, Article 5, Section 3 imposes a mandatory and non-discretionary duty on the state election board to place 820 on the ballot that should not be subject to amendment by statute, slow walking the process, or political tinkering. Uh, yeah. The inference there is, or the implication, I guess maybe it's the correct word, is there is probably conventional wisdom that the folks who might get excited to come up to the polls in November and vote for recreational marijuana may not also on their ballot color in the Kevin Stitt box. <laughs> and we, we have what appears by, based on recent polling to be a pretty competitive mm-hmm. race between Governor Stitt and, and Joy Hoffmeister. So, you know, if you want to go down that road, then there, there could have been some incentive to keep this off of the November ballot and not suggesting that the Secretary of State was acting inappropriately, but it would not stretch the imagination to think that they may not have been going out of their way to figure out a way to count these any faster than they, than they had to. <laughs> and we're certainly not, you know, suggesting that the court played any role in that, but, you know, it is what it is. It was a, it's a statutory process. It does have to play out. There are timelines that have to be followed. So, you know, this is kind of an interesting deal. I thought it was kind of funny too that, this new software that the Secretary of State's office purchased to help count the ballots is the product of a local Oklahoma political pollster. Political pollster is the, the term that yeah, so who, who I have no idea if they have any experience in the software business, yeah. but when they started running into problems with the software, the opinion notes that the company that provided the software had basically four employees <laughs> who also happened to be relatives of the proprietor who they sent to the Secretary of State's office to, to try to help ungum the works to no avail, apparently. <laughs> so, as I mentioned, then the final opinion that we'll talk about today, just very quickly, 2022 OK 77 is the court's order addressing the protest to the ballot title of this. So, under the statute, the Attorney General can rewrite the ballot title. And then once the notice is published, that's one of the things that somebody can challenge. And so there was a challenge. The court says, no, we're going with the AG's rewritten ballot title here. So when it does eventually appear on a ballot, it will be the title that was rewritten by the attorney general's office. So this actually, all four of these cases we talked about today have come out within the last 10 days or so. So we initially planned to talk about some Court of Civil Appeals opinions today, I think, and then we switched gears because we had quite a bit of breaking news, I guess, from the court on some, you know, political kind of hot button issues. So, yeah. So fun fun way to start off season three of the pod. That's right. And I think that will bring the the special marijuana and COVID edition (laughs) (laughs) of the Oklahoma Supreme Court review. To, to an end. Okay. At least for now. We'll see. We see we'll see if we've got more COVID and pot coming down the pipe here <laughs> in the near future. <laughs> All right. Till next time. Bye-bye. Hi everyone. This is Gabe again. To find show notes, contact the host, and more, go to Oklahoma Appeals.com.
Also, if you're interested in the things we cover on this show, then you should follow us on Twitter at Oklahoma Appeals, where we post court news and other items of interest for Oklahoma lawyers. Okay, Jana and I will be back with a new episode every other Wednesday. So until next time, bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by OklahomaForms.com. Take cut and paste to the next level with hundreds of automated forms in multiple practice areas. Draft better documents faster and make your practice more efficient and profitable for only $49 per month. No long-term commitment. Cancel any time. Join hundreds of Oklahoma lawyers that have already discovered the magic of OklahomaForms.com. Go to OklahomaForms.com to sign up for a free 7-day trial.